Keeping children safe is important for all of us, but for one man, it has become his mission in life. The best path is never going to be perfect because this is a complex problem. In that regard, for me, the idea of engaging all these different people is crucial to the end game, which is to help improve our practices and our ability to protect children. That's Dr. Benjamin Levi, the founder of I Look Out for Child Abuse, an online learning module that uses interactive videos to help train people to be responsible mandated reporters for suspected child abuse. He'll share his journey and lessons for improving the learning experience next on Powered by Learning. Powered by Learning is brought to you by DaVinci Interactive. DaVinci's approach to learning is grounded in 30 years of innovation and expertise. We use proven strategies and leading technology to develop solutions that empower learners to improve quality and boost performance. Learn more at DaVinci.com. Welcome to Powered by Learning. DaVinci CEO Luke Kemsky is joining me today to talk to our guest, Dr. Benjamin Levi, Director of I Look Out for Child Abuse. Welcome, Benny. Yeah, great to see you, Benny. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Benny, start out by sharing a little bit about your background and how it led you to create I Look Out for Child Abuse. By training, I'm a philosopher. I do work in bioethics with a focus on human decision-making. I'm also a, a general pediatrician. So historically, I spend about a third of my time seeing kids in clinic ranging from age one or two days through age 21. And I teach bioethics and do research at the Penn State College of Medicine. I'm also uh, from Kansas, uh, which means that I sort of have a down-home view uh, towards a lot of things. Um, I'm interested in how things work, and I prefer to sort of be really direct about figuring out what things mean and where they come from. Yeah, I guess uh, building on that, tell us how that led to um, you seeing training as a potential, like an, a way to have an impact on reducing or eliminating child abuse. Okay. So it really ties into all those three things uh, that I just mentioned. It began in a sense when I saw a child many years ago, probably almost 20 years ago in clinic who had an injury that could have been caused by abuse. And I knew that as a mandated reporter, I had to report if I had reasonable suspicion. But because I'm a philosopher, common language lost its meaning to me years ago. And so I went to figure out, well, what does reasonable suspicion mean? And the more I looked, the less I found. So I spent some time doing a conceptual analysis of it, which made me think that there is no standard for what reasonable suspicion is. And then I started doing a bunch of empirical work, doing surveys of pediatricians and other populations. And it turns out, yes, that what reasonable suspicion meant depended entirely on who you met that day. Some people thought it meant there was a 1% chance that abuse was occurring. Others said, no, it has to be 99% likely and everything in between. And so I began to think, all right, well, we need a standard definition here. And the way that you get that is by first helping people understand that there is a problem, that's education, and then figuring out a way to help people be receptive to a recognizing that something they thought they knew, they actually don't know, and then presenting it in a way that was sufficiently engaging that they actually would open their minds to that. And again, I'm a, by nature, I'm a six-year-old. I, I think in terms of what is the basic question? What is the basic thing that needs to be figured out? And so I'm often the person that asks these questions that seem, or maybe they are very simple because I'm trying to get at the root of things. And I'm that guy 
in the room who asked the question that everyone's like, why is he asking that question? For this particular challenge around mandated reporting and child abuse prevention, you have to ask that question to a lot of different people with a lot of different perspectives and different subject matter experts. I mean, you have the legal side, you have the social side, you have the medical side. How did you pull all together those different perspectives and the subject matter expertise from from those different areas to build a comprehensive training approach? Well, I'm a very curious person, and so I like to engage people who have things to teach me, which a lot of people do. And I am really, I try to be inviting of those, of their perspective. And I, my MO for how I work is that I want smart, passionate people in the room arguing hard, and I want the best argument to win. And I don't care whose argument it is. And so, and it's also the case that for something like this, my goal is that everyone gets up from the table and walks away feeling like they got the best deal. Right. And so for me, I wanted people who cared. Right. And that's what makes this hard is you know, things are hard if you care. If you don't care about the product, then whatever. But I wanted people who cared and wanted to sort of push their perspective to make sure it was considered because this really is the elephant that one person says it's like a rope. Another person says it's like a leaf. Another person says it's like a trunk and your perspective on the issue. What is at issue with child abuse and what are the consequences and what are the dangers of missing it? What are the dangers of overreporting it? What are the dangers of involving the system or not involving the system? All of those need to be heard and they need to be integrated. And I don't have a dog in this fight. My goal is not to push an agenda, but my goal is to really help people get a deeper understanding of what the issue is and figure out the best path forward, knowing that the best path is never going to be perfect because this is a complex problem. In that regard, for me, the idea of engaging all these different people is crucial to the end game, which is to help improve our practices and our, our ability to protect children. Yeah, that's great. And I think not only did you engage uh, a lot of caring subject matter experts and people with different perspectives, but you also engaged a lot of caring learning and development professionals in your journey. Yeah. And and I think you also, you know, bring a, a passion for how you deliver e-learning and learning. So can you talk a little bit about the features that you wanted to make sure that were part of iLookout to make them more engaging and more and really come up with better learning results in the end, better outcomes? Yeah, thank you. It's a great question. So what I what I began with what I didn't want. I didn't want to sound like the parents on peanuts. Womp, 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 right? womp, womp. I and 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 I I wanted this to be respectful of the fact that our learners come with something. They come with an understanding, they come with a set of experiences, a set of insights. And so to me, respectful learning is engaging. And the question is is how do you deliver that in a way that is that draws people in and keeps them there. Because in a certain ways, what we're doing is we're selling. We're selling, saying, here, this is something to spend your time on, to spend your energy on, to spend your attention on. I sell in clinic all the time. I'm selling safe, I'm selling safe sleep for infants. I'm selling wearing, wearing seatbelts, brushing your teeth, taking time for you and your partner so you're not burnt out with your children. I'm competing. And so when I think about, well, what is going to have appeal to people? I think, well, it needs to be entertaining enough 
that they're interested in it. And for me and most people, that's stories, right? So now if we have stories, how do we get people more engaged? Well, we give them a role to play. That means it's interactive, right? And how do we do that? Well, ideally, we use things like animation. Now, if I had a lot of money, I know I'd be at Pixar asking them, <laughs> but I have limited resources. So, so in the midst of figuring, so I bring in people like Carl Kopp, who's up at uh, Bloomsburg University, who's a rock star in gamification. I bring in people from uh, like Rob Ham in Oklahoma, who spent his whole life looking at de- human decision-making and how you measure it. And so my goal is to make this something that people value, not something they have to do, but something that they walk away going, that was, that was a good experience. And it helped me navigate difficult waters that I have to, to go through if I care about children, because these are not simple answers. And the way I make it engaging is by making it meaningful to solve the problems that they are struggling with. Yes, absolutely. And you really make the learner think by engaging them that way, which in the end, that was going to lead to, again, better learning outcomes. People are going to come away knowing and feeling and choose making different choices based on the experience they have in the learning. When you think about the opportunity that you've had, because you've had some grant funding, you've been able to do some research. And I think your background as a philosopher and as a researcher have kind of led to some opportunities for which you're able to do with I look out that go beyond just developing training, but also measuring kind of what works. Can you talk a little bit about that? You bet. And this is, uh, you're alluding to the idea of something being evidence-based, which means that it does what it says it's going to do and it makes a difference, right? And unfortunately, when you come to something like mandated reporter training, we did a big survey of mandated reporter trainings all over the country and found that there are only 10 states in the entire United States that actually have a pre and a post test before and after their training, authorized training to see whether people learned anything. And to my knowledge, none of those people have actually validated their test. Imagine your people who listen to you know this, but I'll just say it because it's important is that a question that seems straightforward may not provide you the information you actually want. Perfect example of this is that if you ask undergraduate students whether their professor is knowledgeable, right? I mean, how, what could be more simple than that? It turns out that their answer to that question is most closely correlated with, do you like your professor? If you really want to know whether they think their professor is knowledgeable, you have to ask different questions. So it seemed to me that if we're going to bother to get people to spend time learning about child abuse and its reporting, what to report, what not to report, what steps to take, how to comport themselves, we need to make sure that we know that it's a worthwhile training. And the way we do that is by creating a pre and a post test, by making sure those measures that we use are validated and being sort of conscientious and responsible to the learner because we're asking them to invest their time. And so to our knowledge, we have the only evidence-based mandated reporter training in the country. And what we've been able to show in multiple studies, including some NIH randomized controlled trials, is that it significantly improves people's knowledge and it changes their attitudes about child abuse and its reporting. I know that now you've kind of moved on to developing other kinds of additional training to supplement and complement what you've already developed with with the core mandated reporter training. Can you talk a bit of, a little bit about the influence of your research findings on how you're approaching these uh, other projects? Yeah, and it, 
part of some of its mind, some of it's what a lot of people have done beforehand. There's a, a famous over a hundred years ago called the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve. And it demonstrates, and this has been repeated many times that. But people keep forgetting it, right? Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that if, if, if you learn something, that if you don't reinforce it within six to 10 days, you've lost six to 10 days after you learned it, you've lost 40 to 60% of what you learned. Learning is only as good as its lasting power. And so the question for me was not just what, how much could we make someone's knowledge improve, but how long could we help that be sustained over time? So we're actually doing a, a, an NIH study right now here in Pennsylvania to study what it would call micro learning, which are six to 12 minute long interactive learning modules to see whether that can help people sustain that learning and how best to deliver it. If you give someone a vaccine, you usually give them a booster. The question is, do you give the booster 10 minutes later, a month later, three months later, nine months later? So our research right now is looking to see when that booster dose of education is best delivered. If someone completes the core training, do we then do this micro learning, which they can complete on their cell on their smartphone or what have you? Is it best if we immediately start to reinforce or should we wait three months, six months or nine months? And if you guys wait another about two years, three years, we'll have the results of that. Uh, that's so great. You know, uh, one of the things I love about our podcast is when we can have someone on who has a passion about learning, but didn't come kind of grow in the the learning and development field and kind of has a different perspective, like thinking about immunizations and boosters as as a parallel to it's ongoing a, learning. Yeah, it's a great analogy. Um, and I talk about maybe the influence of your training as a physician and your ongoing learning, you know, with maintenance of certification and all of that and how that may have influenced how when you're developing or leading the development of learning solutions, how you might approach that differently. Yeah. So there are a couple of aspects of that. One is just sort of the concrete business that I, I've seen a lot of kids who've been abused or who could have been abused. And I also know that one has to have a lot of humility about what you know. The things appear one way, and it turns out they're not. So I, I think about a, a woman, uh, a kid who I saw many years ago, who had the worst bow legs I've ever seen, referred them to uh, orthopedics, and they no-showed. And I referred them again. They, they no-showed three times, which surgeons really don't have a lot of patience for. And I was just about to report them for medical neglect. And I finally got a hold of the mom. And it turns out that she thought that when I said serial casting, that that's what orthopedics would do, that what we were going to do was break her child's legs and put them in a cast, break them again, put them in a cast, and keep doing that until the child's legs were straight. I wouldn't take my child to a, to a surgeon for that either. Part of what looked like neglect really wasn't, right? So from a, a clinical standpoint, I've developed, I hope, more humility than I otherwise would have. As you went through your training as a physician and as you go through ongoing maintenance of certification and other learning activities to, to stay fresh and current, how, how does that influence when you think about when you're in the role of developing training, how does that influence that? I remember that. So you asked about maintenance of certification. As a pediatrician, I had historically, I had to, I had to take a big hard test and then I had to recertify every 10 years, taking this big hard test. And the American Academy of Pediatrics relatively recently, certainly within the last decade, changed that to a maintenance of certification process so that rather than taking, you know, not requiring any kind of education for 10 years and then giving you a hard test, they said, 
instead, what I want you to do is I want you to engage in these activities that reinforce your knowledge. And if you do that well enough and frequently enough, we will not make you take that test again because you're demonstrating you're being current. And actually about three years ago, three or four years ago, the American Academy came out with this, these sets of questions that come out about every three months and you have to do it. I was like, wow, this is, is not as good as I would like it, but boy, it sure is a lot better. It's much more interactive. It gives you time. Like in real life, it gives you a question. You have five minutes to answer it. So you can go look up in books and other things to refresh your memory. I'm like, this is a lot better. And then come to learn what about four or five months ago, I learned that JPL and DaVinci actually developed that in part for the American Academy. And I think that that is really the way to go is that it makes more sense to reinforce learning and to improve people's education on an ongoing basis. And so that also funded how I look at I look out and this business of micro learning. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Good. Yeah. And I, I know you're very much interested in the technology side of learning delivery and certainly the data that we can track and that we can learn from a research standpoint and a continuous improvement standpoint. Talk a little bit about kind of what you see in terms of trends in learning technology that you're enthusiastic about and you're looking forward to adopting in, in what you do moving forward. Well, I think one of the most powerful things that we can do over time is to tailor the education to the individual so that you're using the smart functionality that computing and other electronics, much of which is way above my understanding, but I know what they can do. And so it's frustrating to people to be asked to learn something they already know or to demonstrate you know, a certain level of proficiency that they've already demonstrated. And so I think one of the things that evidence-based approaches to e-learning and other things can do is they can track what a person has already demonstrated mastery of and tailor subsequent education to where those person's weaknesses are educationally or in terms of perspective or providing them new experiences to apply that knowledge in novel ways. Because one of the things we know is that people learn things, but how you apply them is much harder. We teach medical students all the time you know, about a whole range of end-of-life care and advanced care planning. And then when I put on my clinical ethicist hat, I get a call from those people two years down the road, and they, it's like they never took a course on bioethics because they just don't know how to apply it. I think that what advanced learning can do is it can give people different permutations of what they've learned, encourage them to apply it, give them challenges, give them problem-solving. And do that in a way that is tailored to the needs of the individual. And that requires some kind of, you know, smart programming to track and figure out what eventually the algorithms are. And I think that's where we're headed eventually. Yes, absolutely. That And that will, you know, just in time, just for the right person can really make it so that it's uh, a lot more effective. Um, talk a little about what's next for the for your vision with iLookout, with your the learning group that you have within um, Penn State and um, kind of what 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 you're looking forward to doing next. Wow, how much time you got? Um, so, <laughs> um, I mean, one of the big things I should say is that I look out mandate reporter training. The core training has now become the, the official training for Head Start programs in all 50 states and U.S. territory, which is huge. It means that we have the opportunity to help improve how people think about this issue and how they support children and families all across the country. Ultimately, I, I would like to see I look out in every state and if somebody comes and outcompetes us and does a better job, I'd be happy for that too. Because 
I want us to raise the bar to say, no, you don't throw together a PowerPoint and just have people get information regurgitated to you. I would like I look out or its equal counterparts to pervade mandate reporter training all across the country. We have developed other kinds of microlearning, not just that reinforce that core training, but on issues that are tangential but related to this business of child protection. So, for example, we are on the verge of implementing a, a course to help start staff recognize and support families that are struggling with substance use disorders, because we know that's related to child well-being and sometimes to child neglect. We've developed courses on promoting resilience in children and their families. We've developed a microlearning course on what are adverse childhood experiences. We did that in concert with the Centers for Disease Control. We have in mind to develop other courses on topics like postpartum depression, which is a huge issue. We have one on intimate partner violence, but we'd like to develop that more. These things are related, but not spot on. And from the standpoint of microlearning, I think that they give people an opportunity to engage when they have time. You know, when they're waiting for their kid's ballet lesson or soccer practice to end, and they have 10 minutes, they can do a brief microlearning module. And so I think the coin of the realm now in, from my perspective in education is accessibility and feasibility. Maybe it's just because I'm getting older, but people's attention spans seem to be getting shorter. And you can't expect people to listen to an hour, hour and a half lecture. But I think if you do it well, you can expect people to do a interactive gamified eight to 12 minute activity. And that notion of gamification, whether it involves, you know, digital rewards or whether it's other kinds of, of interaction that provide sort of more of a, not entertaining, stimulating, a more stimulating experience. We know that that triggers our dopamine, right? And I think we want to leverage that without simply becoming people in marketing. Though I think sometimes think that some of my goals would be, have been better served if I had taken a PhD in marketing than <laughs> because a well-reasoned argument doesn't convince many people. But a well-crafted, conscientious story that knows how to reinforce key points is much more likely to open people's minds and help them change their their perspectives on things. Uh, Yes, absolutely. I think you wrapped it up really well there. And we certainly appreciate you uh, coming on uh, Power by Learning today and sharing your perspective and sharing the exciting things happening around iLookout. And uh, yeah, we look forward to having you back to talk about the future programs sometime in the future. Well, thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity. And uh, if if people out who are listening have questions, please uh, encourage them to reach out. I can meet at the Penn State College of Medicine. You can find me online. Thanks, Benny. We'll put your contact info and some links to some other helpful information in the show notes of the podcast. And as Luke said, we're going to look forward to staying in touch and learning more about all that's ahead. And thank you for everything that you're doing to keep our children safe. Thank you. Luke, it's always so nice to talk with Benny. He's so passionate about what he does, and he's very inspirational. What lessons do you think our listeners can learn from his experiences with I Look Out for Child Abuse? Yeah, I always really enjoy talking to Benny. I mean, he loves researching, and he loves the different approaches to creating and delivering and measuring learning, especially the learning outcomes. And it's really embedded in his experience as a practicing pediatrician. You know, isn't he like the perfect example of the multidisciplinary instructional designer? You know, that the book that you discussed on the recent Powered by Learning episode? Yes, yes, for sure. Because he's learning from his past experiences to inform his new role. Yeah, exactly. He kind of, it's a 
the integration of his background, his experience as a student, you know, doctors, they spend lots of time in classrooms and in labs and all different ways of learning um, and the ongoing learning that's required. Um, and, he, and he's passionate about preventing child abuse. And he's, you know, really has a mission and, and drive to do that. And he has this goal to create better learning experiences that that make him such a good and, and challenging client <laughs> and, and a good person for anyone um, who's involved in creating learning experiences to, to listen to and learn from. Now, I, I love listening to him talk because he, you can tell how much he wants to learn from the learners that will inform, you know, what he'll do next to make it even better. So, so talk to us a little bit about how Da Vinci's working with Benny. Yeah, no, uh, we're, we're working with him and his team at uh, Penn State to take their core mandated reporter and child abuse prevention training courses, and we're integrating them into our EcoLearn learning management system. And we're doing it in a way so that they can be delivered to new and expanded audiences and so that they can track their use and effectiveness. So it's not just scoring and certifying the learners, but it's also getting into really measuring the training and how effective it is and capturing that to support the research that they're doing at Penn State, in addition to supporting their goals for training as many people as possible who are in the role or, or have the responsibility of being a mandated reporter. It's going to be really exciting to work with him to build on his success and, and try to really make a difference in keeping kids safe. Yeah, I'm sure we can... Uh, have some future episodes that involve the project and other some of the other stakeholders who are involved. For sure. It's a date. I'll get you on the calendar. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good, Susan. Thanks, Luke. And if you have a suggestion for a topic or a guest, please reach out to us at poweredbylearning at davinci.com. <laughs>